Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning, brothers and sisters, to Luke 11. Luke 11, verses 24 through 28, as we're continuing through Luke's Gospel. As you're turning there, I do want to say a word of thanks to everyone, to all of our deacons, to all the others who showed up and helped with our church workday yesterday. So grateful for your efforts to keep up our building and grounds here. Our passage this morning is Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 24. Follow along with me as I read. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that wished you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. As each of us sit here this morning, Lord, there are numerous blessings that we can count in this previous week. And I know some of us in this room have had a a difficult week, a hard week. And yet, Lord, the fact that we are here, the fact that you have provided and protected and brought us now to this time and this place is evidence of your incredible grace. Lord, as we come together, our heart's desire is Christ. Give us more, Lord, more of truth that we might be conformed to His person. More grace, Lord, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Him. More conviction, Lord, that we might see our sin and run to Christ and battle against it to put to death what remains. And more compassion, Father God, to carry this same truth forth in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our family circles, in our friend groups. Give us, O Lord, more of Christ. Speak to us now through Your holy Word. In Jesus' name, We pray. Amen. I know that we're all here familiar with the the cliche, out of the frying pan and into the fire. It's a way of stating that our efforts to sometimes get out of a bad situation can sometimes end up leaving us in an even worse situation than we were in before. And there are numerous times we've probably seen this, this cliche or this principle, if you will, in effect. Maybe it was an attempt to deal with some difficulty in the workplace. And in our efforts to deal with that difficulty, we only made things worse. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. Maybe it was our attempt to reconcile a difficult relationship. And somehow in our attempt to reconcile, we we fumbled, we foibled, we ended up making it worse. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. Well, we see that principle in effect in our text in a way. Last week, as 
We looked at the passage before. We considered the evil accusation that was brought against Jesus Christ. And we saw how he logically dealt with that accusation. How he showed that the Pharisees in making that accusations were being nothing but hypocrites. And that even their own practice revealed that they were liars and hypocrites. And now as we follow on the heels of that very tense exchange, we see Jesus going at an even deeper level with the religious leaders, getting really to what is the true heart of the matter as far as their hearts that were distant from him. So for the religious leaders, for the Pharisees, it was out of the frying pan, into the fire. As we saw last week, Jesus clearly rebuked them And he made it very clear that they were the ones who were striving against God. And moving into this next passage, we don't know if if this exchange, if this parable that Jesus gives about the unclean spirits, we don't know if it happened exactly this way, but we do know that Luke, inspired by the Spirit, had a purpose in recording it this way. The exorcism of a demon back in verse 14 had sparked that previous exchange. And so Jesus returns to the subject of an exorcism to use as as a parable to warn us about a very prevalent deception. And his warning is simple. This is the warning of this passage, very clearly. Do not confuse the absence of evil with saving faith. Do not confuse the absence of evil with saving faith, because if you do, you are worse off than before. And so we're going to explore that warning this morning, as well as the blessing he gives that is an exhortation to us all. And so let's first consider the warning against a deceptive morality. The warning against a deceptive morality. The parable begins with the effect of an exorcism. Look there at verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And so, this unclean spirit or demon, as a result of some exercise of the power and will of God, goes out of a man. It passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Now, this is one of the questions we have. What what are these waterless places, Pastor Sean? Well, this could simply be a reference to the spiritual world where there's no physical water present, or it could refer to the underworld, to hell, which is described as a place of unquenchable fire and torment, where we would associate that description as being a place that also has the absence of water. Whatever it is, in going to those places, the demon finds no rest. It finds no place of satisfaction to himself. And therefore, the demon decides to return to the person he came from, whose heart, figuratively referred to as a house, has been cleaned and put in order. But even though it has been put in order, it is still empty. So the demon gets seven other demons more wicked than itself, and they all go to the heart of that man, thus making the latter state of this man worse than his earlier state. Now, how do we understand this parable? Because it is clearly given in the form of a parable. Only Jesus could interpret it perfectly, but I think it does give us a very clear lesson. 
A person may miraculously be freed from demonic control, as many were during the lifetime and ministry of Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus cast out demons all over the region during his three and a half years of earthly ministry. These persons, now set free from their spiritual oppression, would spiritually clean house. They would take deliberate steps to get their lives back in order. So imagine a person, formerly a demoniac, formerly possessed, formerly given to great wickedness and evil, now set free from that evil, would begin to clean themselves up. They would separate themselves from previous behaviors and associations and pursuits that were wicked and sinful. They would seek to restore broken relationships with their family members and friends. If they had lost the ability to work, they would likely be able to resume gainful employment and taking care of their families again. They would get their lives outwardly on track by making better decisions, by embodying high morals and character, and they would begin attending synagogue again, just as they had, as they had done before. In other words, they would have all the outward marks of having their house or their life in order. But... However well the house has been cleaned or however well a formerly possessed person may look like they are doing outwardly, there still might be no one living in their spiritual house. You know, this is a the lights are on but no one is home type of idea. Such a heart becomes a welcoming place for even greater sin and greater demonic deception to take root. And so the message is very clear. Any personal spiritual reformation that takes place apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ is ultimately going to result in a person being worse off spiritually than they were to begin with. Now, why is that the case? Well, from an earthly standpoint, we can be thankful for the common grace of God that leads men and women to live good moral lives to make good moral choices, to turn from evil and wickedness. But we must be very clear, brothers and sisters, on this fact. Being good does not reconcile anyone to God. Being good does not make anyone right or just in God's sight. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's what it says in Romans 14, 23. And we all know well Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that tells us it is by grace that we are saved, not by works so that no man can boast. Good deeds done for oneself do not honor God. We must remember that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags apart from Jesus Christ. But secondly, there's a greater deception that someone is subject to when we manifest a mere outward morality. You know, it, it, one commentator said, a religious, self-righteous, reformed person is subject to Satan in a way that a guilt-ridden, immoral person is not because his very morality blinds him to his basic sinful condition and need. He is perfectly satisfied with his empty house, thinking that freedom from the outward manifestation of sin is freedom from its presence, power, and damnation. But nothing could be further from the truth, brothers and sisters. Indeed, that was the, that was the condition of the Pharisees and most of the Jews. They outwardly manifested a sacred allegiance to God's law. 
The Pharisees and Sadducees and the the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were a very moral people. They lived very well-ordered lives. They obeyed the law and even minutia of law that were invented by men to help them keep the law that was written in God's Word. But they were still empty. And worse, because they lived such outwardly moral lives, they were deceived. They felt they had no need for salvation. They were ultimately far worse off than those who humbly acknowledged their sin and need and cried out to God because of it. And the inward absence of true righteousness does eventually show itself in the evil of self-righteousness. That's what it did with the Pharisees. Second Peter, in, in the book of Second Peter, the Apostle Peter writes about this. Second Peter 2, verses 18 and following, it says, it describes these kind of people. It says, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Brothers and sisters, we we can fast forward 2,000 years to the time we're in right now and we see this very same thing is true. And and it's true all around us. I mean, we especially are in southern culture, right? The, The southern United States. You know, here in Montgomery, Alabama, we're practically the buckle of the Bible belt, right? And when we stop and consider it, most of the people we interact with, most of the people that that we work with, that we go to school with, that we go to ball games with, that we go to ballet recitals with, most all of those people would say, yes, I'm a Christian. They would claim the name of Jesus Christ. But you know as well as I do that those very same people are living lives that are very much for self and not for Christ. They profess allegiance to him, but church is something, you know, they're they're there on Christmas and Easter. As far as what they're pursuing and what their priorities are in the world, they're very much aligned with the world. We see it in our own culture. And thus we are to hear this warning of Christ as something that's certainly applicable to us even now. The absence of overt wickedness is not evidence of a relationship with God. Half-hearted repentance is not true repentance. A self-qualified faith is not saving faith. And, And don't hear me wrong. True faith does bear itself out in a godly morality, right? There is the evidence, the fruit of true faith that is borne out, as we heard from Pastor Jim this morning in 1 John, that is borne out in commandment keeping. But this is where we have to be careful to not put the cart before the horse, right? Keeping God's commandments apart from a true heart of faith is just deception and a path to damnation. It is faith in Jesus Christ 
that truly saves us. And the sad thing that we must realize, again, especially in Southern Bible Belt culture, is that all of our religion may be exactly what is keeping us from the true Christ. This is why Paul even again, 2,000 years ago, wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I think J.C. Ryle put it so well in his commentary on Luke. He said, there is no safety except through Christianity. To put to one side open sin is nothing unless grace reigns in our hearts. To cease to do evil is a small matter if we do not also learn to do good. The house must not only be swept and whitewashed, a new tenant must be introduced or else the leprosy may appear again on the walls. The outward life must not only be decorated with the formal trappings of religion, the power of a vital religion must be experienced in the inner man. The devil must not only be cast out, the Holy Spirit must take his place. Christ must dwell in our hearts by faith. We must not only be moralized, we must be spiritualized. We must not only be reformed, but born again. That is the call of the hour, brothers and sisters. And that is the very deception that Jesus would would have us be aware of. The fact of the matter is, all of us to some degree do really well at managing the outside. You know, even this morning as you woke up, you prepared yourself to to go out into the world as you do most mornings. You know, you, you brushed your hair, you got that sleep right out of the corner of your eye. You put on good clothes, clean clothes, you you shaved, or you put on makeup, or you you prepared yourself to, to go out. Spiritually? Morally, we're really good at preparing ourselves to be out amongst people. We're really good at preparing ourselves to look like we have really good, upright, and perhaps even religious lives. But the question we must ask is, is Christ at the heart of it? Is Christ in our heart? So I ask us this morning to weigh these things. Is Christ your only confidence? Have you repented of your sin and believed in Him alone for salvation? Do humble repentance and true faith mark your day-to-day life? In other words, it's not just something you did in the past as a child or, or maybe as a young adult. But do faith in the gospel promise and repentance of sin mark your day-to-day life? Are you deceived by self-righteousness or are you resting wholly in Christ's righteousness? Are you proud of how well-adjusted and moral your life looks? Are you proud of how well your children obey? Or do you humbly understand that it is only the grace of Christ that has brought you these blessings? Are you a different person in private than you are in public Do you feel the need to hide your own sin from others rather than humbling yourself and trusting God to remove your sin through faith in Christ? 
Do you believe your obedience and behavior make you right with God? Or do you understand that your obedience and behavior are the fruit of being right with God? Do you understand that in Christ, you can boast of nothing good in yourself because everything good in you comes from Him? It has been wrought in you by Him for His glory. Is that the mindset of your life? The warning of our text is clear. We must examine ourselves to make sure that we are not deceived by our outward morality or our religious traditionalism. False professions of faith in Christ will come to light. They always do. If not during this life, then they will come to light at the judgment seat of Christ. Matthew 7, in Matthew 7, Jesus warns us of this, beginning at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And preaching this warning to us, brothers and sisters, again, I, I know some of us are of more sensitive conscience and sometimes we can wrestle with matters of assurance of salvation. I want to be tender with you and I don't want to cast you into one of those times of doubting and wrestling with God over the issue of assurance. Indeed, if you are asking those questions about the assurance of your salvation, that is fruit of salvation. Because a person, apart from Christ, wouldn't care. But I would have us weigh our hearts, brothers and sisters, because apart from Christ, any or all of us could be deceived. At the same time, understand, His mercy is always ready his mercy is like a fountain, a never-ending fountain of grace that is always overflowing for those who turn to Him and seek Him. There is nothing that you have done. There is no deception that you have been given to. There is no behavior that you have undertaken or hidden in your life that cannot be cleansed by our Savior if you do not but go to Him in faith. And that really leads us right into the second point. The blessing of true faith and obedience. The blessing of true faith and obedience. As Jesus was saying these things, look at verse 27. A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Now you can imagine what an intense scene and a somber scene it was as Jesus just finished speaking of a person who was doomed in their self-deception. Right at that moment, a woman in the crowd, probably moved by the authority and conviction of his teaching, shouted to him, Blessed are you, Jesus, in the womb that bore you, the breast at which you nursed. Now, we're not told anything about this woman. But if we look at this rightly, we cannot help but think that she herself is a mother, right? She was likely thinking of how proud and thankful she would be to have such a, a godly son. And we want to understand, Mary, as the earthly mother of Jesus, was indeed blessed to be that, to be that instrument of God. 
In Luke 1, 48 and 49, Mary said, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The Roman Catholic Church wants to take that passage in Luke 1, and even our passage here, and add to Scripture. They use passages like this to venerate Mary, and even to make her into an object of worship. We want to avoid any kind of false teaching like that. It is not wrong for us to say that Mary, as a humble sinner herself, was used by God in a very important way in the history of salvation. She is an example of faithfulness for us all to follow. Mary is one of many godly women that we see in the Bible whose example is set before us for men and women alike, for us to follow her example. When God called her to be the mother of the Messiah, she believed what God had promised, and then she acted in obedience. And so in that way, Mary was blessed, but she is not to be venerated. How did Jesus respond to this particular woman in the crowd that day? Well, he didn't reprove her for what she said, but he did improve what she said. In other words, this woman was, was not wrong, but there was a higher truth. Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, when Jesus speaks of hearing his word, he means far more than just perceiving it audibly. Hearing in this context means understanding and embracing and believing what God has said. His word is the word of life. He speaks with all the authority of heaven, and his word is what we have preserved for us in Holy Scripture. And keeping his word is also far more than just maintaining it in our possession. Keeping his word means acting upon it, obeying what it says, bearing out the truth of it in the example of our lives. And so hearing and keeping means trusting and obeying, brothers and sisters. If we return to the subject of Mary, she was also blessed in this sense. Again, her most important relationship was not as a mother to her son, but as a sinner to her Savior and as a disciple to her Lord. As Augustine wrote in his work, Holy Virginity, Mary was more blessed in accepting the faith of Christ than in conceiving the flesh of Christ. And this same blessing is available to everyone who trusts in Jesus. We don't have to be biological members of his family to have his blessing. We just need to listen to his word and do it. In fact, no one can be nearer or dearer to Jesus than the person who simply believes and follows. If we obey without hearing or trusting, we put ourselves back in the place described in my previous point. Obedience and morality and law-keeping without a heart of faith is not acceptable to God. Such a person is nothing more than a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. On the other hand, if we have understanding and faith and no works of obedience, then that's not true saving faith either. As James said in James 2.17, faith that is not evidenced by good works is a dead faith. Hearing and doing are the two steps to blessedness in the kingdom of Christ. That's believing and obeying. And that's exactly what James states in James 1, beginning of verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. 
But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Brothers and sisters, all of this brings us back to, again, that that third use of the law of God, right? The law of God has, has three uses, three purposes when we talk about the spiritual life. First of all, it reveals the righteous and holy standard of Almighty God. God's law reveals to us His perfect righteousness and how it is manifest. Secondly, the law of God serves in human society as an instrument of restraint, to restrain evil. As men are reminded of the truth that is written in their hearts as image bearers of God, you shall not murder, you shall not lie, you shall not steal. It serves that restraining influence in society. And so that law that is given to us, revealing God's righteous standard and controlling evil in civil society, drives us to the cross, right? It reveals the sin of our hearts, how we have all violated those laws, and it shows us our need for salvation. And this is where it's key to understand, none of us, by keeping the law, can ever be justified in God's sight because we cannot and will not ever keep it perfectly. We need a substitute, a Savior, who keeps it perfectly for us, and that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the beauty of the gospel. Everything that we could not do, Jesus did for us. Everything that that we were subject to, imprisoned by, enslaved to, Jesus powerfully sets us free from. Christ is the one who does for us. He is the one who serves us the truth, His truth. He is the one who abides in us and gives us new desires in our hearts. He is the one who strengthens us for every godly task. He is the one who gives us a new nature and grants us faith as a gift So that as we trust and obey, He is the one who gets the glory for the fruit of salvation that is born out in us. Our salvation is all of Christ. But as Christians, that's where that third use of the law comes in. God's law, His commandments, are how we demonstrate love for Him then as believers. We are no longer judged by the law. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the law as a standard of righteousness does show us how to please God, how to love Him, how to honor Him. And that is why texts like Pastor Jim read, 1 John 5, tell us that if we love Him, we will keep His commandments. Not because that earns us justified status, or not because that keeps our justified status in the, arms of, in the eyes of God. No, God saves us and God keeps us by His power, by His will, by His might, through Jesus Christ our Lord. But it is the right response for the believer who loves the Lord as a new creature in Christ. It's just that simple, brothers and sisters, as those who have been made one with Jesus in salvation, we love what He loves and we hate what He hates. And what does Jesus love? He loves, He delights in obeying His heavenly Father. And praise be to Him, He gives that same heart to every one of His children. He changes us from the inside out. 
giving us that new nature, making us a new creation, and calling us to follow Him. So do not be deceived. How well you look on the outside is not necessarily a reflection of what's going on inside. And indeed, if you are depending on how you look externally and the moral life that you're keeping, if you think that that somehow earns you favor with God, then you are more deceived than a lost person who's given over to wickedness and sin and knows it. You are in a dangerous place. Turn to Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ. Hear His Word. Believe in Him and walk in obedience to Him. For this is the way of life. This is life with Christ. Amen, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord, Your Word is so clear. It is so rich. It is so good. It is not our work, Lord, but it is the work of Christ by which we are justified. But Lord, how we live as Your children is important. So let us weigh ourselves, Father. If there is any one of us here deceived, deceived by an outward morality deceived by a religious traditionalism. Deceived into thinking pridefully that somehow we stand by our own good works. Lord, rescue us from that deception. Save us. Take us, Lord, to the cross and lead us to behold the beauty and the wonder of Christ our King who is the spotless Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, who is the perfect sacrifice for our sin, who is the risen Lord of glory at Your right hand interceding for all who trust in Him even now. Make us, O God, by Your Holy Spirit, a people who walk in the glory of Jesus Christ, who know the blessing of your presence and who walk in the way in the footsteps of our Savior. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.